Welcome to PH Drinking. This is your host, Sadie Witkowski. Uh, PH Drinking is a show all about getting grad students drunk and having them talk about their research and what gets them excited um, and why you should be excited too. So my guest today has actually taken a class on historical dress patterning and can design historical clothing based off of paintings or other pieces of art. Her name is Lauren Jackson, and she studies at Cornell University. She's a rising third year and um, studies history. So Lauren, what are you drinking today? Well, I started out um, with some vodka from where I grew up, Austin, Texas, so Deep Eddy grapefruit vodka. And uh, I will admit, I had a little bit before I left to come here to my office. And then now that I'm at my office, I am working my way through a bottle of California Zinfandel. So Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'm actually, actually also drinking. <laughs> I'm also <laughs> drinking Deep Eddy vodka. Um, yes. I, we're both from, as you said, we're both from the Austin, Texas area. And I have a, a recipe my mom sent me that's like basil vodka, the, the grapefruit vodka, um, ginger beer, and lime juice. And it is really strong and really delicious. So I'm I super kind of have, it. like, a, when I have it on hand, the sweet tea vodka and ginger beer. That's one of my favorites. It's kind of like a southern Moscow mule. Yeah, um, exactly. I'm drinking it out of a Moscow mule glass right now. I actually there, have some that go. are from <laughs> Dripping Springs, where we're actually from. Um, so why don't you tell me, you're in the history department. When you're, in a, when you're a grad student in history, are you within a lab? Are you just in an area? Do you, do you have one advisor, multiple advisors? So I would say loosely within an area, mostly you're assigned to a specific advisor. So you apply to work with a certain professor in the department. Um, in my case, I applied to work with a professor named Robert Travers, who uh, does British Empire in the 18th century, uh, more or less. And uh, so you're kind of mostly set to that particular advisor. You have a committee, uh, which is about three different professors. So I also have a professor who works on French history in the early modern period and a professor who works on Latin America and the Atlantic in the early modern period. Are these, um, is not. this committee just for your master's or is it for, do you actually meet with them regularly? Uh, so <laughs> theoretically you meet with them fairly regularly. Mostly I meet one-on-one -on -one with the different members, but uh, they're the committee that will administer my A exam, which is kind of the, uh, similar to a qual in other departments. Uh, here at Cornell, they call it an A exam. Um, and they're also the committee that will sit in when a student presents their PhD um, research and their dissertation. So, so what does history research actually look like? That's because I come from a, a science background and a psychology specifically background, and that's very different than, than a history background, I'm, I'm assuming. Yes. So we do archival research is the main, I guess, component. Uh, so a lot of your first two to three years is reading secondary source research. Um, so in history, there's the big distinction is primary sources, which are sources from the period you're working in. So since I study 18th century British Empire, a primary source might be, um, you know, a will, correspondence, uh, trade ledgers actually written uh, by people living in the 18th century, whereas secondary sources would be books that modern historians have written about it or articles from journals, et cetera, et cetera. So because... I was just going to ask, do you ever go to um, like other libraries to find primary source documents or do you have to find them online? So usually for the first couple of years, you find stuff online. And luckily, uh, 
Britain is really good about digitizing things. So I have friends who study, you know, Thai history um, or Vietnamese or Russian, and it's obviously much more difficult to find things digitized. Uh, but for British history, you can find a decent number of things online. Um, and then generally after you uh, achieve the master's level, you apply for a SSRC grant or a Fulbright grant to take an entire year to do research in the country that you study. And that's when you go and you spend a lot of time in the archives and you basically at that point kind of know what your dissertation research is and dig up everything that you could possibly find related to that. Take photos, take notes, so that when you come back to the United States, you have enough material to write your dissertation. So that's in your third year? Fourth year. So usually your third year you take your A exams, um, which kind of qualifies you for moving on to your dissertation research. So it's like a, um, it's, the, the calls are like mixing, um, getting getting a grip on like the main topics that you might want to address for, yes. for your dissertation. So you have, usually you have your main field with your committee chair and then your two other committee members have subfields. So my main field is technically it's called English history because the department hasn't changed the subject field names in forever, but it's really more like British Empire. And then my subfields are kind of 18th century French history and early modern Atlantic world. And you have to, you create a reading list for each of your fields that is anywhere from 45 to like 120 books, depending on how intense your advisor is. And you read all of the books and then you have a written and sometimes an oral component to prove that you know all of the material from that field. You kind of know the historiography. So you can speak to what other people have researched in that field and you know why your research is different and new and where it fits into what previous people have written about. So then you ha- you're filling the gaps after having gotten an idea of where the research currently stands. Yes, pretty much. Yeah, that's very similar to in the field of science. So we have also qualification exams that we usually, uh, within my area of the department, we do at the end of our third year. Uh, in that case, we're also reading... I don't know how many articles. It makes me nervous. You pick six topics and you have to read a bunch of articles. And then you also have a a qualifying exam and sometimes an oral exam, depending on personal preference and area. And that kind of sets you up for your PhD dissertation. So it's very similar in science, but we're not reading books. We're reading articles. So what we're reading is usually 16 pages long, but has a lot of technical aspects. So, So in your reading, is it a lot of technical aspects? I mean, is there understanding the methodology or is it a lot more about... Um, seeing different perspectives on one historical event. I don't, yeah, I don't know about that. It depends. Um, So it kind of depends on the field. You could have a field that is geographically based. So for example, French history is pretty geographic, whereas Atlantic world could be more thematic. So maybe you're looking at like geographic aspects or cultural aspects. And that is something that generally students speak with their uh, committee member and kind of, and they decide how they want to, sell that particular field. And I'm in the process of doing that right now, actually. A couple of my committee members are uh, still out of the country <laughs> doing research this summer. Uh, so when they get back, I'll probably uh, quarter them and get them to settle that. But it is, um, I mean, you're reading full books, so there could be anywhere from like 200 to 600 pages. But the idea is that you don't need to know every microscopic detail, as fun as those are, and those are actually the fun aspects of uh, generally what you're reading. The <laughs> bigger point is to kind of read the books and get a gist of where they lie in relation to other people writing on similar topics and also, you know, what their argument is 
So See, mostly, that's... you know, nobody's going to go, uh, what happened on page 237 of this book? Everyone's going to say, what was the general argument? How do you think this book contributed to studies of, I don't know, 18th century Atlantic trade, something like that? See, that's the exact opposite of an of activity that you and I were involved in, UIL, Universal yes. Interscholastic League, <laughs> which is neither universal nor inter, barely interscholastic. It's only hosted in the state of Texas. And we were on the UIL social studies team, and we had to memorize things like, what were some hobbies of William Rehnquist, which I'm pretty sure you remember as well as I do. Stamp collecting. <laughs> he collected stamps. <laughs> oh, and, and geography trivia. That was him too, right? Yes. Oh yes. God. Gosh. Oh, man. Do you feel like that influenced at all your decision to go into a history PhD? I mean, what kind of pushed you in that direction? Because that's a very specific and no offense, not well-funded field from my understanding. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. No, I think it did probably for the wrong reasons, actually, which is hysterical. But it was the first time I'd ever done anything history related because there are obviously not a lot of extracurricular activities that build upon your love for history of trivia. <laughs> and um, so it was like the first time I'd ever realized that there was actually something I was very good at, which was remembering all of these crazy details about historical events and people. Um, it's, his it's really funny because I can remember historical dates very well, but cannot remember like my family members' phone numbers or key codes to get into locks. I don't know why. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, like, I have to tie it back to some kind of historical event if I have any hope of remembering uh, someone's phone number. But, uh, yeah, so that was kind of the first time that I realized, like, it was something I was good at. Um, a lot of my friends actually growing up were much stronger in math or science, so they've all become engineers or engineers, <laughs> mostly. <laughs> and I was obviously, like, I was good at math, but I was never as good at math as they were. So this was the first time I'd ever kind of been really, really good at something. And it kind of continued when I was an undergrad. I was pretty certain I didn't want to do history because, as you say, it is horribly funded. And um, I was kind of, like, drug in against my better instinct because I was really good at it and I just found it fascinating and I actually was really lucky in that I found a professor who was willing to be pretty involved and he actually had a, uh, a humanities lab which is um, something that's not very common but it was kind of an interdisciplinary lab where people who knew web coding or history or art history would come together and we worked on things like museum exhibits or um, websites presenting historical research in kind of innovative ways that are much more interesting than your stereotypical like 60 page research paper and yeah, that was kind of the thing that made me think yeah it made me think like I would actually like to do historical research it was kind of nice uh, the idea of reaching people in innovative ways and taking stuff that like I found very fascinating because I'm a geek about history and finding a way to make it interesting to people who aren't history geeks and there is definitely a component in history to where it's kind of, it speaks to the universal human experience. Um, there's a sense in which you're both trying to make people who lived centuries in the past relatable to present people, while at the same time keeping the character of the time in which they lived. So they're relatable, but it's not because, you know, they may have, a, they, they're not going to have a modern sense of, of feminism or of social equality, um, but there are still characteristics that carry across the centuries. And that's kind of a very uh, subtle and difficult thing to capture, but it's one of the neatest things is when you can kind of catch 
that sense and then convey it in a way that people who aren't historians can actually understand. Yeah. So going off of that, what do you think? You've seen Hamilton, right? I saw a picture on Facebook yeah. that you actually got to oh, see it. I haven't it. seen the musical. I listened to the musical a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but I haven't, yeah, I haven't actually seen it. I would, I would kill to be able to go see that musical. But yeah. It seems like it, um, it keeps pretty well with the historical times. I, I mean, bringing obviously a modern flair. It, it reminds me a lot of Great Gatsby, how the, the music in Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby was clearly very modern, but it gave the feeling of the opulence of the times. Yeah. No, so it's funny because I can't even remember how I initially found out about it. I think I saw some like BuzzFeed link or something weird like that that pops up on your Facebook feed. And my initial thought was that... Um, I don't actually listen to a lot of rapper hip-hop usually, so I was, like, very skeptical. I'm one of those people who I get very skeptical when people try to mash up modern and historical stuff, because a lot of times it's done very badly. But I was like, oh, you know, this is could be interesting. This is a period of history that I uh, really like. Uh, and I started listening to it, and I was like, wow, like, it, it fits in so much history into the format of this musical. And not only that, but it really speaks to some of the themes that you don't usually get in musicals because of the format of the song. So it talks about, you know, gender and class and and complex things like financial history that generally you would think would be a snooze fest. Like, everyone would be asleep if you tried to sing about that. And actually right, makes but that's it very the, interesting. that's the argument between... That, that's the argument between Alexander Burr and uh, Alexander Hamilton, right? The the argument about a centralized bank is, is a huge part yeah. of that. Yeah, and uh, definitely Thomas Jefferson. Um, so, like, Thomas Jefferson's character is kind of the, like, old old school, um, I mean, what was then Democratic Republicans, but they were kind of all about keeping things not centralized and states' rights and having stuff in a very much state-by-state basis. Um and yeah, no, I think the musical is amazing. Not only is it musically incredible, but the amount of history it manages to fit in and um, everything it talks about. I mean, the fact that it talks about women's role in society. Um, so, you know, anyone who's seen Hamilton knows um, Angelica Schuyler, who's super smart, but she recognizes that her basically her sole job in life is to marry well, um, which is something that just doesn't... <laughs> She doesn't have the same scope for her abilities that Alexander Hamilton does. And even his wife, who isn't as ambitious as his sister Elizabeth, um, it's interesting that she's the one left on the stage at the end. She outlives him and is actually the one who carries his legacy forward and tells his story, which is very interesting that you end a story that has predominantly male characters with a woman on stage. Um, which is neat. I loved that. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that's historically true. Women tend to outlive men, and also women are usually the... I don't want to say the keepers of history, but women are the ones who tell the, you know, the folk tales around, oh, this is getting maybe too gender stereotyping and you should totally correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> women are the ones who carry on the family stories. I mean, when I asked my mom about family history, she's like, oh yeah, we had someone who was involved in the mafia during prohibition and was like running like an alcohol ring in Missouri. And I asked my dad and he was like, I don't know, we came from Poland. I was like, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of depends. Like um, in some ways they... Like, women married a lot younger than men. So a lot of times they were far younger than their spouses and would thus outlive them. Um, but there's also a sense in which women had to undergo childbirth, which prior to the 20th century, honestly, prior to the mid-20th century, was very dangerous. And so they died a lot more frequently than husbands did um, because of complications resulting from that generally. 
Um, but yeah, it is, it's interesting in that it's hard to find, I mean, especially in the 18th century, it's hard to find women because they are the records that you find, which are mostly legal records, business records, government records, definitely privilege male interactions. So, you know, the kind of people that are mostly carrying out business transactions are men, white men, generally, if we want to get very specific. Um, and the kind of people that are leaving behind legal records are also usually white upper class men. So trying to find, you know, women in that there are there are books and there are sources, but there are just far fewer of them um, than exist for men generally. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised. And I think that that's that is thankfully changing thanks to social media, because I think that women tend to be more socially engaged and active on things like Facebook and maybe Twitter, although I'm not sure I'm I'm just entering the realm of Twitter myself. Yeah, but uh, me too, I can't speak to it. <laughs> exactly. I was gonna ask, I mean, so in your research, how many of your primary source documents are men's records versus women's just on average? Oh, gosh, almost all of them are men's records. Um, I'm trying to think. I have a couple. I You find occasionally things written by women. Um, so a couple of figures that I write had wives who would correspond with them. So you come up with that correspondence. Um, sometimes there will be a woman who is prominent enough in the community that her letters have been saved and will be digitized and you could find them online. Um, but it's just very, compared to the, the amount of information that you can find about men, it's very small. Uh, it is, it's one of those things where it's a period I love, but one of the things that is, uh, hard to accept, I guess, is that I study rich, dead white men. (laughs) And it's hard to get away from that because that's just... That's what the material is, and especially because some of what I do is uh, maritime or naval history, which is a very, very male-dominant uh, arena super. of society. Yeah, there's not a lot of women. Um, like, actually, there are pretty much no women on, like, British naval warships. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, because there were <laughs> women captains. I, I'm uh, an ardent follower of a website called rejected princesses and the idea is to look at women from history and mythology that would be rejected by disney as princesses because they're either morally ambiguous or they push the line too much or all kinds of interesting reasons and there is a really great um article and an illustration that he did for a chinese woman who like married the pirate king and became the pirate queen and he ended up dying and she had like a fleet of like 200 ships in china and the chinese government like signed a treaty with her that was like yeah you're super powerful we wish you weren't out here do you mind if like you (laughs) lay down your arms and don't pirate anymore and we won't charge any of your sailors and you can keep whatever you've like you know plundered from our ships and she signed it i mean that's one of the few women i can think of naval history (laughs) yeah no i mean um I guess I'm, I can't think, honestly, it's sad. I can't think of specific examples now, except um, Eliza That's what alcohol does. South Carolina. Yeah, so there you go. But there is a sense in that sometimes there are a few women. So, uh, for example, I study uh, this itty-bitty island in the Caribbean called St. Eustatius, uh, which was, uh, for most of the 18th century, owned by the Dutch. Um, uh, and there were women burghers, so... That's kind of like the equivalent of being like, I don't know, like a 
town councilman. Like a burger is being a citizen of the That's island. That's the B-U-R-G-H-E-R-S. Yes. Right? Okay. Um, yes. It's And uh, mostly it's because they were widows. So uh, obviously in the 18th century, a woman who married, her property became her husband. So even if you bring a dowry, so, you know, if you bring a lot of money from your family to a marriage, it all becomes your husband's. You don't have control of it. The good husbands would maybe set it aside so that if you're widowed, it reverts back to you. Um, But theoretically, they could do whatever the hell they wanted with it. Okay, and we had some technical difficulties, but when we were last talking, uh, you were talking about you study an island in the Caribbean, and I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Yes, uh, so I look at the island of St. Eustatius, uh, which is in the Leeward Isles. It is very small, uh, and it was actually owned by the Dutch, even though I study the British. Um, But there was a uh, large colony of British merchants that lived on the island, and uh, I kind of look at the interactions between sovereignty and economics. So the fact that all these British people live on this island that doesn't belong to the British, um, and they live there basically so they don't have to pay taxes (laughs) to the British government, and that they can smuggle goods using Dutch free trade laws. And um, this ends up being something that the British government is not really behind, let's put it that way. So this was an original tax haven. Yes, no, it's, um, <laughs> it pretty much was. And uh, a lot of these merchants would come here because you could buy and sell goods without having to pay import duties or export duties. And there weren't the limitations that you had in British colonies about where you could export and where you could import things from. Um, unfortunately, like the whole reason, part of the reason why the British government had these rules is that when you were fighting a war, it's really... Uh, really aggravating when your own subjects are selling goods to the enemy. Um, so that was kind of the impetus between behind them trying to crack down on the presence of merchants on St. Eustatius and other like islands. And ended up they ended up invading the island during the American Revolution. Um, the part that no one ever hears about is the part where they declared war on the Dutch and sacked this island and confiscated everyone's property. Um, did the war end er, earlier for like the Americans or for the Dutch? Like who, it, who declared peace first? Around the same time. Um, so it was, they were linked in a sense that, um, I mean, people who, who know a bit about the American Revolution um, understand that we didn't really win so much as having to fight a war against us and the French and the Dutch and Spanish became really expensive for the British and they kind of decided to cut their losses and decide that we weren't really worth that much expenditure. Um, And so the Dutch, it wasn't great for them, let's put it that way. Um, They lost a lot of islands. They didn't really have a navy to compete with the British. Um, Theoretically, they were sort of on the same side as the French, but not officially. Um, And it was the end of the island. I mean, after the American Revolution, this island, St. Eustache, just never really returned to the prominence it had before. And just kind of fades away into history. It's still under Dutch control and it has a population that is nowadays a fraction of what it was in the 18th century. Wait, so it's still Dutch like today? Yes. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't know that. Yes. Um, nobody knows because it is tiny. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, its its main value was the fact that it was a free port in an era where there were very few free ports and that it was relatively close to all of these other trading locations around the Caribbean and Atlantic. 
So why did the Dutch decide to have these free ports? Why didn't they put tariffs like you would see with the Spanish or the Portuguese or the British? Um, It's an excellent question because the obvious answer is that they wanted to attract uh, more trade, um, which they certainly did. But the problem is it didn't actually profit them any. So the whole reason why most of these ports weren't free trade is because the government doesn't get any revenue unless they're taxing trade. Uh, You know, pretty basic. And uh, the Dutch decided that they were going to do free trade, which would attract more people to the island. And that was great. And a lot of these people made massive fortunes. But none of it really trickled back down to the Dutch government in the Netherlands. Um, So... Ironically, they kind of didn't help their um, empire, so to speak, very much. Uh, but it did make it extremely popular with merchants from other nations. So, <laughs> so all the documents that you're looking at about this island, are they like still located on the island? Or are most of these in like a British archive or a Dutch archive? I think there are probably some... Very few probably still on the island. A lot of what I'm looking at, because I'm looking specifically at British merchants, um, are actually located in British archives. And some of them are digitized, um, because that's the beautiful thing about studying Britain, is that they have been very good about uh, photocopying, scanning documents, and putting them online for people to read. Um, some of them are in the British National, uh, the British National Archives, the British Library. Um, there are a few things that are in Royal Maritime Greenwich. Uh, and that's mostly the the documents that I would be working with. And these are all legal documents. So the, the island got taken over by the British. Did the British citizens get to keep their property or? <laughs> no, uh, that was a point of big contention. Um, so there's this idea in the 18th century, which is that when you uh, conquer an island in the Caribbean, it's only really valuable to you because if it's still producing So, for example, somebody who would conquer a plantation economy, you don't really want to ruin the plantation economy because there's then no point in you having that island. So generally, um, these takeovers were fairly peaceful in the sense that the people in charge might change, but the actual structure of the economy often didn't. Um, St. Eustatius, because it was not a plantation economy and pretty much the only thing of value it had to offer was its role as a trade port, which was exactly the thing the British wanted to end. Um, got treated very differently. So first of all, they confiscated not just the goods in the warehouses on the beach of the port, but people's private property as well, um, including the property of British citizens, who they all argued were traitors and smugglers for living on St. Eustatius. And that turned out to kind of uh, bite the admiral who's in charge of the invasion in the butt because he uh, got sued or the government got sued by all of these British subjects who said, you can't take our private property. You have no proof that we were doing anything wrong. Um, when they tried to seize people's ledgers and then send them back across the Atlantic, uh, the, <laughs> the uh, fleet that they were being sent back across, along with all of these confiscated goods, actually got taken by the French. Um, oh, shoot. So, like, all the profit, and all the profit vanished. Um, the documents that did make it back to London mysteriously vanished because the government officials in charge didn't really want to get involved in this battle. Um, they knew it would make them look bad, so they conveniently lost these documents. So this is an old-school cover-up. Yes, it was one of those, like, um, I mean, the Admiral uh, Admiral Rodney, who actually became pretty famous because he won he won this huge battle of the, it's battle of the Saints later in the American Revolution, which was kind of the only reason the British managed to keep face in the Caribbean. But um, he was constantly in debt, so when he took this island, he pretty much looked at all the wealth and said, I want some of that. 
And uh, there's a British system called prize money where British vessels that seize enemy vessels get to take all of the goods and wealth on board the enemy vessel and it gets divided up amongst the crew of the British vessel. And that's kind of like um, a supplement to the income because they don't get paid a lot. And uh, Rodney decided that it would be great if this also applied on land to St. Eustatius, which it doesn't really. Um, oh, can you still hear me, Sadie? Yeah, I can definitely okay. still hear you. Saying lost connection to server, just wanted to double check. Um, but yeah, so he basically thought, I'm just going to seize all of these goods as prize money, even though this isn't a ship and these people aren't technically enemies, they're British subjects. And uh, unfortunately, there was, you know, a huge outcry against this. Um, even people on other islands were a bit nervous and said, ah, we're not really sure we're keen on what you're doing at St. Eustatius because we don't want you to do the same thing to us in the future. So I have a question. So was this the absolute first time that this never this this maritime law had been applied to like a land area? No, it, it had kind of been a touchy subject um, off and on for the previous century. And a lot of it had to do with smuggling and how you apply um, admiralty law, so maritime law versus like law of the land, so civil or common law to these questions of smuggling. Um, and so the problem is that admiralty law, strictly speaking, was only supposed to apply to things that happened on the high seas. It's kind of the first type of international law because, um, I mean, law of the land, uh, it implies it, it's tied to the land, you know, because you're a British subject living on British soil, these laws apply. And originally there wasn't really any precedent for what happens when you leave Britain. Are you still bound to British laws? Do you kind of get to do whatever you want? And especially if you're not just in a foreign country, but on the ocean, which doesn't really belong to anyone. Right. That's actually why um, Sealand exists, right? It's like, yeah. well, they claim they're a nation, but it's really just like a platform that the British built in, in technically international waters. Yeah. So um, it's kind of something that over the course of the 18th century is being debated. And there's this Dutch position, which is this idea of kind of, you know, um, open ports, open waters. It doesn't really belong to anyone. You shouldn't try and control trade. And then the British point of view, which is that they are trying to control what goods are exported from their colonies and imported to their colonies. And uh, a lot of times smuggling is supposed to be tried in, um, they keep trying to try it in these maritime courts as kind of a violation of admiralty law. Uh, but a lot of times colonists want it to be tried in civil or, um, or common law courts, uh, mostly because those courts have juries. <laughs> and nobody in America is ever going to vote against another smuggler because most of them are smuggling themselves. <laughs> yeah so nobody actually wants to get busted or anything and have no there's this um even among like colonial officials in america there's this kind of conspiracy of um complicitness they are all benefiting from smuggling because the laws are draconian hold on i think we actually did lose yeah ah! so um you can see in the lower left that it's not moving on yours, but it's moving on mine. Do you see what oh, I'm talking about? Mine's moving on mine right now, but oh, never mind. Oh, thank God, it's still moving. Okay, but that's it stopped moving when yours when you when we dropped recording last time. Uh, um, yeah. So I think I can see it, but I keep getting this losing connection thing keeps popping up in my right, like upper right. Yeah, I saw that too, but now it's gone. And your audio sounded a little bit weird for a bit, but now it sounds normal again. Yes, so yours was I'm... too. So I don't know. We were having connection issues. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So back on topic, <laughs> I feel so ADD trying to check on this. 
Um, yeah, so the, these, like, like where you get tried and the kind of punishments were probably very different for Admiralty versus... Um, yes. Like so, I mean, in general, it was uh, a fine. Sometimes you could be put in prison. That wasn't actually as common. Usually it's that you would be fined and whatever smuggled goods you had would be confiscated. Um, that was kind of general general procedure. And honestly, it wasn't something that had been enforced very stringently until after the Seven Years' War. So uh, in 1763, when the Seven Years' War was over, um, the British government realized that smuggling had actually been part of what enabled the French to fight them so effectively in North America. And, um, you know, being fairly intelligent, these government officials went, well, I guess that means we should probably crack down on smuggling. And I think that's kind of still true of what you see today. I mean, whoever is selling the weapons or selling the munitions or, or whatever else you see that in the Middle East, that's kind of where the real problem is coming from. Yes. Um, and that was, I mean, St. Eustatius was a huge depot for gunpowder. So um, the Netherlands had a lot of powder mills and they would ship gunpowder from the Netherlands to St. Eustatius. And then in St. Eustatius, American um, basically blockade runners would buy it and take it to the colonies. Uh, because America just didn't really have the facilities to produce enough powder uh, for their own use. And so they could produce, America could produce some gunpowder, but not all? No, I mean, they had like one or two powder mills, just not very many. And so they really depended on imported powder, and obviously the British aren't giving them any more gunpowder. <laughs> so um, it was really, they were getting a lot of it from the Dutch, and uh, it got very complicated because the Dutch are theoretically neutral with Great Britain. And the British said, you are violating neutrality by shipping our rebellious subjects gunpowder. And the Dutch said, oh, it's a free port. We have no control. Um, like, we're just shipping it to St. Eustatius. We don't know what happens once it gets there. And uh, they kept saying, oh, but, you know, we'll try and crack down. Like, we'll try and ensure that nobody can ship gunpowder to St. Eustatius if they intend for it to be sold to the Americans. Um, and this didn't really work because a, it would be super difficult. Uh, there was a lot of, you could forge papers pretty easily saying that it was going somewhere else. And as soon as you left the port, just change your direction and B, the Dutch didn't really care that much cause they were making money off of it. So, um, it was something they kept kind of reading off this rote response to the British ambassador and in, in the Hague and, um, continued to do exactly what they've been doing before. <laughs> Until they got invaded, basically. Yes. Well, I mean, that's one of the... There were several reasons why uh, Britain declared war on the Netherlands. Um, but the St. Eustatius was a huge part of it. And actually, the very first thing they did after they declared war was send uh, one of the fleets that was in the Caribbean. They sent a letter like on the fastest ship they could get across the Atlantic to Admiral Rodney and said, sack the island. Stop it. We do not want them helping the cause, the war cause in the Americas anymore. That's so crazy. That's definitely like the the unsung story in American history. Where you're like, yeah, and then we defeated the British. It's like, well, how do we get gunpowder? Like, <laughs> there yes. are other people helping us, and for their own personal financial gain, it had nothing to do with, you know, a free, independent Americas, basically. That's so fascinating. I mean, so you're very interested in this legal aspect. And so that's kind of why that this particular issue interested you because there's all this, this confluence of different types of, of law statutes, mm -hmm. like clashing. Yes. Um, yeah. So there's this, I mean, there's this question of where legal regimes collide. Um, so we have this, there's a tendency to view empires sort of cut and dry, you know, one empire stops, like one imperial 
dominion stops where another begins, and there's kind of a border between the two. Obviously, this is complicated when you get to the Caribbean because um, most of these imperial dominions aren't huge stretches of land, they're islands. And you could have one island that is French, and, you know, three miles away, there's another small island that's Dutch, and then, you know, another three miles away, there is a British island. So there isn't really this sense of, you know, a vast swath of area that belongs to one particular country. And it's also a pretty um, pretty cosmopolitan region. There are, not only are there merchants from all these different nations living in foreign islands, but uh, there's a huge population of sailors um, that will work on basically any ship. You know, a British merchant vessel could have sailors, uh, you know, not just from France and Spain and the Netherlands, but also from, um, you know, native sailors from around the Caribbean as well. So there's not strictly a sense, it, things get muddy, there's not this sense of um, strong definition between one imperial power and the other that I think the European powers uh, would prefer that there had been. Oh, of course. And I think that's that was probably a very cosmopolitan feeling for even the people living there. I'm sure even if they did see themselves as British citizens, they're also like, yeah, but I'm also from the specific island, which has its own unique subculture. It's kind of like how people from New York City might think of themselves as kind of, you know, different than the rest of America. Like, yes, they're American, but they're really New Yorkers. Yeah. Or Texans. Yes. Uh, no. And, um, and it was kind of funny because, uh, so for example, there was this British merchant, um, on St. Eustatius named Richard Downing Jennings, and he was extremely wealthy. He had made a very successful career out of trading out of St. Eustatius. And um, actually, he was <laughs> trading goods um, in North America, and one of his vessels was seized by the American rebels. And uh, he tried to say, oh, um, you know, you can't seize this. I'm not, like, strictly speaking, a British subject. I live at St. Eustatius. I'm just doing this for profit. Like, you can't seize my goods because I'm a British subject. Because I'm not really. I don't live in a place that's British. And I basically only care about making a profit. And um, he had this kind of ongoing case was going on. Um, and then St. Eustatius got sacked by the British. And he writes this, like, 60-page pamphlet and at the same time sues the British government saying, I'm a British subject, you can't take my goods and confiscate them. <laughs> so it's definitely a sense that these people are, how British they think they are or feel, a lot of times depends on personal interest. Yeah, um, and who you're talking to, quite literally, you know, if yes. you're talking to the naval officer or you're talking to someone else who lives on a, on a neighboring island that you want to do trade with, essentially. Yes. Um, so there is, I mean, these people are fairly well-educated for the most part. Um, so sometimes you would have, you know, second or third generation, but a lot of times even people who are second or third generation uh, merchants would get their education back in uh, Britain, um, or they had been educated in Britain and were seeking their fortune in the West Indies. Um, so these are people that have a fair idea of the law and are working actively to make it um, suit their purposes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> As I think everyone tries to, to some degree. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, well, I think that's all the time we have right now, but, uh, if people are interested in your research, is there a way that they can contact you? Uh, you know, do you have a Twitter or, um, another public persona place or, or a website that your lab uses to recruit? 
Yes, well, we just launched the new history department website here at Cornell, so you can find me under the long list of graduate students there. Um, but I am also on Twitter um, at, at LaurenJackson77. That's great. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say that's pretty much my uh, like professional online presence right there. <laughs> Great. Okay. And as always, you can find us at PH Drinking on Twitter. Uh, and if you have any suggestions or other kinds of graduate students you'd like us to interview, you can email us at phdrinking at gmail.com.